Welcome to Rich in Life, a podcast for anyone looking to be entertained while picking up a few tips on life, luxury, and resilience. And now your host, Rich Irani. Hi, I'm Rich Irani, and welcome to Rich in Life. We're going to do a show today on Rich in Life that we have not covered yet. We're going to be talking about politics, how divided our country is, and how our freedom of speech is in jeopardy. And who better to talk to about this than Dave Rubin? He's the host of The Rubin Report and the author of Don't Burn This Book. I've been watching him on YouTube, and you can also find him on the conservative network Blaze TV. Dave is a self-described classic liberal who is a champion of free speech and equality for all under the law, regardless of race, gender, religion, or sexual orientation. His mantra is live and let live. Oh, and he happens to be gay. Watching his journey from a real liberal Democrat to becoming more center-right is amazing in so many ways. I've watched his aha moments. One in particular, if you haven't seen it, is the one with Larry Elders. You can actually watch Dave's brain take in all the factual information he never knew or believed. You can't argue with the facts. The other shocking and scary revelation is how such a calm, logical, open-minded, and reasonable nice person can get so vilified and be called a Nazi and a bigot on a regular basis. So I guess being gay and Jewish doesn't even change the narrative to the people who disagree with you. Let's get started. Hi, Dave. Hey, how's it going? It's going great. How's it going with you? All right, just uh, busy as always, you know. I know, never, I really have end. to say, all I do is I, I read your book, I'm at the gym, I see you on Fox. I mean, it's okay. nonstop. You must be a very busy guy, and I know you are, and I thank you pleasure. for joining me. Yeah, it's my pleasure, and uh, busy's good. I've been on the other side of it. I would much rather be busy than not busy. All right. I have to say, I, Dave Rubin, I love your book, Don't Burn This Book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I find that you're a very logical person, and I've been following you for many years on YouTube, on the Rubin Report, which I love. And one of the reasons why I love you is you seem very calm, cool, and collected at all times. You never really get you know, frazzled, and you don't let anyone ruffle your feathers, particularly the very famous Larry Elder piece where we actually watch you change your mind. I mean, we can actually see your face changing your mind. And the best part about it is you didn't even edit it out. Did you edit anything out? I mean, I kind of even wanted more. We edited absolutely nothing out. And as I talk about in the book, my team wanted to edit it out. You know, if for those of you uh, watching this or listening to this that that haven't seen it or, or heard this story, in essence, I had Larry Elder, who's a conservative who happens to be black, on my show, this is about five years ago now, We, when my show was on Aura TV, and I was talking to him about systemic racism. I was a lefty, a liberal, you know, a good, a good Democrat, and I just kept saying this stuff about systemic racism, not really because I had it sort of based in fact, but it was just sort of a phrase that we all talk about. We all talk about systemic racism. It obviously exists. We have a phrase for it, so it obviously exists. And Larry just basically beat me senseless with facts and numbers about how it does not exist. Not to say, of course, that racism does not exist. Of course, racism exists. And of course, there are groups of racist people and individually racist people. But systemic racism, meaning that we have laws that are racist, meaning that the system itself is racist, we do not have that. 
we have always in the United States expanded more rights for more people. I mean, obviously we had slavery. It's a, it's a, it's a horrible stain on our history, but we no longer have slavery. Women could not vote. Gay people could not get married. Those were systemic issues that then we stopped to expand equality to all people. So Larry kind of beat me senseless with it. And I went into the control room. My guys all wanted to cut it. And basically I said, look, if I'm going to do an interview show that, that is going to be relevant and honest in any way, then we have to leave that. That was the moment we have to leave. And although I got hit pretty hard for a couple of days of, you know, conservative destroys libtard on YouTube and the rest of it, what I realized after a little bit was that, hey, people were watching and going, you know, you could see Dave was listening. And, and that really was one of what I describe as three sort of wake up moments in, in my political evolutions. And Larry and I are good friends now, and, and he ribs me about it all the time, and it's all good. Well, I know he's been on your show quite a few times after that as well. Yeah. He's yeah. an incredible guy, I have to say. He's like a walking Google. I don't know how he remembers. You can bring up any topic and surprise him, and he knows names, dates, times, the situation. How is that possible? You know, some people, I think it's just sort of how you're wired. You know, you mentioned that I'm sort of cool and collected. And I think that's partly, partly it's just wiring. I actually think it's it's partly just genetic. And I was always sort of that way. My mom used to always say I was cool as a cucumber. I never, when I was a kid, I was never having major episodes or or fighting. I was always sort of attracted to that too. My I've got a basketball behind me, which is which shoulder? I think it's this shoulder. And my favorite yeah, basketball yeah. player growing up was Clyde Drexler, who was on the Portland Trailblazers and the Houston Rockets. And uh, Clyde was known as just this cool, calm guy. He didn't showboat. He didn't scream. He didn't get into fights. He just went out there and, and did the work. And I always admired that. So I think it was partly I was wired that way. Then, you know, some of my childhood heroes like Clyde were, were kind of wired in that fashion also. So it was modeled for me. And I think for, for a guy like Larry, you know, it just sort of depends how your brain works. Some people can sort of categorize things really well in their brain and they have that set of information that they can get to. I, I, I describe it sort of like a warehouse. Some people have, your, your brain is like a warehouse. Some people have a very, very organized, categorized, library efficient. They, they can go in and get all the stats. They know the numbers, they know the dates, they know all that stuff. And some people it's just a little messy. And often what I find is for the people that it's a little bit messy where maybe they don't know every statistic about everything, but they've got the broad ideas. I usually find those people have a wider set of knowledge to go to. Larry happens to have both, that's how good he is. But a lot of it I just think is sort of how you're wired, how you've trained your brain and, and really how much you care, how much work you wanna put in to what you do. Yeah, I find myself to be a little bit clumsy when it comes to that. As soon as it's time for me to remember names and dates and stuff, I kind of go blank. But off topic a little bit, for somebody who happens to be gay, you're such a straight guy. Do you ever, <laughs> do you hear that a lot? I do. I know I mean, that you're a big sports fan. Yeah. You wanted to be in the NBA. That was your dream. Now I'm 44 with a, a torn ACL in my left knee. So that, that dream is over, but maybe I can be in the WNBA. We'll, we'll see what happens over the next couple of years. Um, yeah, you know, I don't, it, it just happens to be one piece of me. I've been with my husband, David, for over 10 years. We've been married for over five years now. It's, it's just kind of one piece. And, you know, I, I, it's funny because gay people seem to like the idea of like a straight acting person. I'm just, this is who I am for better or worse. It, it is what it is. I actually struggled with it a lot when I was younger because, 
you know, I would see people that were more outwardly gay, meaning they were more flamboyant or they like to dance or whatever it was. They like Madonna. And like, I never really cared about that stuff. And, and that made me feel like a sort of freak in some way. But, you know, I can tell you now as an adult, there are plenty of gay people who have all sorts of boring interests, just like straight people and, you know, watch basketball more than they watch RuPaul's Drag Race or any of that stuff. So it's just like one little facet. And, you know, I don't mind talking about it, but I try not to, you know, it doesn't define me in any way. It, although oddly, I would say one of the reasons I get so much hate from the lefties is because they love their minorities that they can control. So they love, you know, black people when they can control them. They love gay people when they can control them. They love women when they can control them, although women aren't even a minority. So once you step out of that, they really want to issue a pain point on you. So the amount of hate that I get from the so-called tolerant people is really extraordinary, actually. I know. It's, it's funny. I want to get to that. Um, I, I have so many questions to ask. But going back to, you know, it's funny that you say that you don't wear your gayness on your sleeve. I'm kind of the same way. Me and Brad are not, you know, major advocates. We happen to be gay. We're together 20 years. We have two children. They're six and a half years old now. They go to school. And, you know, we don't expect any special treatment. We don't expect any less treatment. But we also, we're not into ruffling feathers. We don't go in looking for a fight and with guns blazing. And aside from the fact that I don't like titles, I don't like titles. So I just want to be a human being. I like to be a decent human being. That's what my goal is. And I, I want to congratulate you guys. I know you guys are going through the surrogacy process. We are. We're How in, is it going? We're, we're, Can you talk it, we're about in it? the midst of it. I, I don't want to say too much just yet, but okay, we, are, got it. we are in the midst of it. And when I need some parenting advice, I'll give you a call. Let me know. With me, I come from an Orthodox Jewish family. We decided I wanted our kids to be Jewish. And, you know, by speaking to my rabbi, he said, think that the surrogate should be Jewish and the egg donor should be Jewish, which was a, was a very big problem, as you know. In any case, it was a very long process. And by the time we did it, I happened to have not told anyone in my family till she was about six or seven months pregnant, except for one nephew who I'm very close to, who's like my brother. He finally told me, Richie, you can't just walk in with kids. You've got to give them a couple of months to get used to it. So if it wasn't for my nephew, I probably would have waited till the kids were born. But my family was incredible. I mean, they're still incredible. And um, well, you need that you need look, you need family, you need community. I think one of the things that's making everybody so crazy right now is in many ways, we've outsourced a lot of that the stuff that you get from family, the stuff that you get from close friends, and local community, we've outsourced that to social media, we've outsourced it to Facebook and to Twitter places that are now turning us against people that we once liked, that we once loved, that we once knew. You know, it was sort of unique 20 years ago, you get on Facebook and it's, oh, wow, there's there's that guy I used to know when I was 15 in uh, in high school. And you're sort of excited to know him. And next thing you know, he's posting some political thing that you disagree with. And now you hate this person that you haven't even thought about for 20 years, who you knew when you were 15. And it's making us all crazy. So we do need those grounding things, family, friends, local community. It's partly why I started Locals.com, because I'm trying to, to re-instill that. And we have to do it not only at the personal level, but also through technology. Yeah. Do you find that um, a lot of the lefties are looking for a surrogate family? And the reason why I say that is I have a lot of friends. I live in New York City. 
I'm in the fashion world. Uh, we travel to LA a lot because Brad has a twin brother that lives there. And we're surrounded by, you know, kind of notable people that are on TV. So we're really the, the minority in the way we think. And we don't think any, I, I mean, I, can, I stole classical liberal from you. I mean, yeah. I got that from you. Ah, I consider myself. I, stole I took it. it. I'm John sorry. Stuart I stole Mill. it and I say it, but and I still get vilified. I still get vilified. I still get people ridiculing me. But the irony is this: the friends that I have, many of them don't even speak to their parents. Some yep. of them haven't seen their parents in the hospital. They're estranged from their brothers and sisters, but yet they will go out and march every day for something for Muslims for, from the Muslim ban. They'll go out every day, they'll leave work and they'll do that. And I'm thinking, you haven't seen your own family in, in a month, months, you know? So that always yeah. makes me feel like maybe they're looking for a surrogate family. Yeah, well, just to be clear, it wasn't a Muslim ban, but uh, I know what your I know what your it point wasn't, was. Right. It, it wasn't, wasn't. I mean, when you was... leave out something like the six largest countries with Muslim populations, it's not a Muslim ban. But but putting that aside, I know that they called point. it a Muslim ban. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I they think called wider, it a Muslim ban, which it wasn't. Yeah, I think your wider point though um, is interesting, which is yes, I think the left has gone out of their way to destroy the family. You know, when I was on the Young Turks Network, when I was a progressive, I was a lefty. One of the things that I really did not like even before I had sort of woken up politically, is Cenk Uger, who was the, the host, head guy on the network, used to often tell everybody there that we were a family. And I really hated that. I, I, I always thought, well, we're not family. I don't go to your house for Thanksgiving. You don't come to my house for some other holiday. I don't really, you know, I like working with these people, but, but we're not, and actually I didn't really like working with a lot of them, but, but right. we're not family. And by the way, you can have family that you don't really like that much and still remain family. So, but this idea that we're family is, is a really interesting thing. And as you know, I'm sure, you know, the Black Lives Matter official website had it, I believe they've removed it, but they had it on their site that one of their goals was to destroy the nuclear family, meaning the two-parent household. And, and why would you do that? What would be the real goal of doing that? It's not just because you hate a mom and a dad or, or two parents and some kids. It's that if you can wreck that initial building block of a society, well, then where you get your morals, where you get your ethics, your views, all of those things, it's all up for grab. And then who can jump in? Well, it's the giant state, and that's what they want. So they love. I think that basically the 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 radical lefties now who are in charge of so much of our culture and our political machinery, they love the fact that families are fighting with each other. And I've got some stuff in my family at the moment because of my political views. That also is the irony. You know, it seems to go one way. My lefty family members, I don't mind that they're lefties. I I try to enlighten them and go, hey, I was one of you. We used to do all these holidays together and discuss all these things. I've evolved differently, but I don't really judge them for it. It's like, okay, you have different political beliefs. What happens is for the lefties, if you don't fall within what they want you to believe, they come after you. That's a fundamental difference between those of us who broadly believe in freedom and those of us who mostly believe in the state. But it's gotten so extreme. And the reason why I say that is because I look at you and I look at myself, we're liberals. Classic yeah. liberals. We're yeah. liberals. We believe in equality for all under the law, whether you're, you know, regardless of race, religion, creed, live and let live, or sexual orientation. 
What's the problem you have with that? This is what I try to find out from my so-called friends that I've known for 20 years that have called me family. Family, I've had them over for dinner so many times. I've hosted parties at the townhouse, you know, birthday parties for Brad for many years. And the first year we stopped doing it was 2016 when Donald Trump was running for president. And I was a supporter. I was. You know, I, I never really swayed. I know that you were a lefty, then you kind of moved to the middle. I was always pretty much very even keel my whole life. I mean, yeah. my values were the same. I thought the same. I, I never went crazy with drugs. I never went crazy coming out of the closet. I always kind of dressed the same. My, my weight was the same. My, my workout was the same. I'm, <laughs> right. I, I sound very boring. I know I sound yeah. very boring, but I'm very ritualistic. And that's yeah. part of my shtick, which is how I became, I think, successful in the fashion business. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, that goes to to show it's like, okay, so you supported Trump in 2016. You made a political calculation. That's all it is. I support this guy. You support that guy. We've done this for a long time in the United States and countries all over the world have done this for a long time. But suddenly it, that then became a referendum on your entire existence to a lot of these people. And, and that's a very dangerous thing. And it's why it's so dangerous even right now, post-Trump, where Trump is now persona non grata, right? I mean, the guy is completely gone. He's not even on Spotify anymore. I mean, they've taken him off Pinterest. I know. He's completely gone. And yet it's not as if they they said, oh, we got the big fish. We're now satiated. What now they're saying is, oh, his supporters are actually domestic terrorists. They suffer from disinformation and misinformation. We have to get Fox News off the airwaves. We have to censor more people on Twitter. And in many ways, I think we'll look back, those of us that care about freedom, and it doesn't make Trump perfect, but I think we'll look back and say, man, Trump tried. He at least tried. And most people don't try. Well, I have to tell you this. People that start off with he's racist, he hates gays, he hates women, he hates everybody. This is when I can't even have a conversation. I'm out. Tap, I'm out. Once you say that, I can't even have it have a conversation with you. You know, me and Brad, I'm going to tell you a funny story. We lived in one of his townhouses on 61st Street. I rented it from him. He signed our leases. He had two twin townhouses on 61st Street that Brad and I lived in. We lived there for 10 years. That was East when we were bringing that? that was East Side, West Side. East Side. We're, East Side. No, yeah, East Side. Yeah, yeah. It was East 61st Street, right off Third Avenue. Yeah, uh, yeah. Great apartment. We lived on the floor through with the huge windows. I always loved townhouse living. I'm yeah. not an apartment type of a guy. In any case, when we were having our children, you know, first of all, I never believed it was going to happen. So finally, when we got the call after nine years of trying that, oh, she's pregnant with twins, all I kept thinking is, oh, my God. I mean, this is not nine years ago. I'm so much older now. What did I do? How do I get out of this? I actually yeah. thought that for the yeah. first, I would say even for the first year, how am I going to get out of this? I couldn't believe what I'd gotten myself into because we said, we're going to give it one last try. We told the doctor, put the two best embryos in. Don't even look at the names. Don't look at, you know, whose it is. Just this is the last time we're doing it. In any case, the kids were due in a couple of months and I couldn't find another apartment to move into. So this was a one bedroom apartment and a floor through townhouse. And we were coming back with six people. We had me, Brad, the twins, a nurse, and his mom. We were all coming back. I had nowhere to put them. Scoured. I scoured the Upper East Side. Couldn't find anything. I kept calling the Trump organization to say if I can have the apartment below us because the woman had just got evicted. She didn't pay her rent in a year. They kept telling me no. Their policy was if you stop paying rent on one apartment, you stop paying rent on two, which I get it. I understand that. I have some real estate a little bit. So I get the notion. 
I started looking more. I went back to them. I offered them more security. I tried to offer them even a full year's which I, I didn't know how I was going to do, but I offered them a full year. I had nowhere to put the kids. Let me take that until I find something else. No, no, no. That's it. I come across this big guy, Irish guy. He's like, hey, Rich, what's going on? How's it going? I thought he was nothing but a handyman in the Trump you know, corporation. I told him, I'm hanging on by a thread. He goes, what's the problem? When are the kids coming? I go, they could be coming any day. I have nowhere to put them. He tells me, why don't you take Blair's apartment? I said, they won't give it to me. I tried. He said, let me talk to the big guy. I said, well, let me talk to the big guy. I've already spoke to Sonia, Michael, Peter, even the lawyers. I've offered them. Tell me who the big guy is. I know how to talk. Now, Dave, I'm thinking that if I talk instead of him, I'll, I'll get the apartment. He's saying, let me talk to the big guy. I go, who's the big guy? Trump. I go, you're going to talk to Trump about me? When do you talk to Trump? He goes, I talk to him every day. The guy's name is Ray Garrity. Amazing guy, big Irish guy. He was buying the carousel in Central Park and he was going to happen. He was talking to him in three hours. He said, I'll tell him. I go, what are you going to tell him? Two fags are bringing home kids and now they need another, you know, they need another unit. And suddenly he's going to go against everything the, the, the company said. He's never going to do that. I have a business. If I did that to my, to my people that work for me, they'd they castrate me if I went against, you know, what they said, mm-hmm. especially if it was the policy. He said, let me talk to him. I'll call you in a couple of hours. Anyway, Ray Garrity leaves. I roll my eyes. I look at Brad. I go, what are we going to do? This is ne- what do we have nowhere to put anyone. Dave, three hours later, we get the phone call. Congratulations. You got the apartment. Mr. Trump wanted me to tell you and tell Brad personally that he's very happy for you. Congratulations. I mean, that doesn't surprise me at all. No, it doesn't surprise me. I know I should be surprised or shocked or something, but it doesn't surprise me. I don't think the guy cares about those things. I know he doesn't care care about those things because that's what he told me to my face. He was amazing. Not only that, I was so nervous. I said, but you have to tell them the corporation. They don't know. Please tell them, call them. So he goes, don't worry. Don't worry. You got it. It's yours. And it's amazing. Now, try arguing with friends who are telling everybody to run and go get married before he repeals gay marriage. I mean, you know, so this is all the stuff. I mean, we were sitting at, um, what was it, the Polo Lounge on 55th Street, uh, 54th. I don't remember. We were sitting, talking to a bunch of people who we just met. We were having the best conversation, spending tons of money on drinks and devouring a lot of calories, thinking, you know, you want to have a good time. The minute the Trump topic comes up, they were foaming at the mouth. They were foaming at the mouth. They jumped up and and they left. You can't have a conversation. Yeah. You know, I've, I've spent most of the last couple of years of my life trying to warn about this and, and fight against it. And, you know, look for as hysterical as these people are, you know, that's not the way most people want to live. And I don't think it's the way that most people actually are. They get caught up in it. I would say that the social justice stuff and the kind of Trump derangement stuff that, you know, it's a mind virus and a virus like COVID is very easy to catch and very hard to get rid of. It's very easy to catch in that, oh, someone disagrees with me politically or they talk in a funny way or they're orange. They must be a bigot, all of the horrible things in the world, because then you don't really have to think about what you think about the issues. If you were to actually think about it, then you'd understand it would be a little more nuanced than everything else. I mean, that's why I was making the argument for a long time that Trump in an odd way for all of his imperfections, which they obviously are. And I think for a guy to go into the corrupt DC swamp, well, maybe you needed a corrupt New York City guy, real estate guy that had to do a lot of crazy stuff. I don't even know, I'm not even saying he was corrupt per se, but like that you'd have to to survive and thrive in that world of New York City real estate in the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, like you're gonna have to do some stuff, right? 
well, maybe that was the only type of guy that could fight the, the DC swamp kind of thing. But that you that people want their political leaders to basically be like Jesus. They want these perfect people to exist. And it's like, no, they're not perfect. And by the way, then what do you end up with? Well, congratulations. We have a 78-year-old man that everyone knows has at least the beginnings of dementia, who's importing all of the worst ideas, and most likely will get us into a couple new wars, and we'll go back to all of the bad stuff that we had sort of eradicated for four years. But they'll be able to feel good when they're at brunch. So it's okay. You know, it's funny that you say that my sister years ago, was it 2016 when Hillary was running against Donald Trump? You know, she was getting backlash from people and, you know, there was just so much divisiveness and anger. And I remember having a conversation with my sister and she goes, you know, and listen, Dave, I'm not the smartest guy. I'm a high school dropout. I sometimes consider myself maybe the dumbest guy on the block, but I'm smart enough to know if I have to choose between my family and someone else's family, I'll choose my family. If I have to choose between my country and someone else's country, I'll choose my country, my community, my neighborhood, my block first. It's nothing against anybody else. I'll come back for you later if things get better and I can take care of my problems. But my sister said something funny. She's like, apparently you can lie, steal, cheat, rape, and even kill. She's talking about the Clintons, obviously. She goes, but you can't be rude on Twitter. Can't be rude. Yeah. Well, as my friend Gad Sad, who I think is one of our, our great thinkers, he's a professor up at Concordia University in, uh, in Montreal. As he often says, Trump was an aesthetic injury to these people. It was the idea of this orange hair-plugged man who eats ketchup on his steak and all of these things, and he's gauche and over the top. But meanwhile, you know, I, I kept saying also that, you know, it was sort of funny, like all of these crazed anti-Trump people, they really needed Trump. Like, like, especially the anti-Trump Republicans like David Frum and Bill Kristol, these people who have helped get us into all of the horrible wars of all time. Uh, David Frum, who wrote the line Axis of Evil into the George W. Bush speech that got us into the Iraq war that killed probably 400,000 Iraqis on top of the Americans and the, the amount of money and everything else. Well, then he needs to be able to go to to live with himself as someone that has he has blood on his hands. He helped get us into a war that nobody now in retrospect, there's just simply no reason we were there. He needs to be able to look at someone else and say, no, he's the personification of evil. Don't you understand? I'm just a guy who is a speechwriter that got us into a war that killed hundreds of thousands of people. He, or even what's happening with the Lincoln Project people right now. You know, they were against Trump because they were the principled conservatives. Well, now it turns out their co-founder was is basically a sexual predator. Um, it's like, again, that's not to say Trump is perfect, but it's like all of you people, you needed him to, in effect, to die for your sins, for your sins, not for his He's sins. a scapegoat. What happens yeah. is he became the scapegoat for everyone. And, you know, to quote Kanye West, which I love quoting him, the poor guy went on and all he said was, I support his policies. Take away the face, take away the orange hair, take away, take away, but put two blank faces and just look at the policies. And I'm a business person. I'm a business person. I go by the logic. I go by the logic of how, not how I want to live, but how I want my children to live in 10, 15 years from now, living on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, having to take um you know mass transit and you know everything else Wait, are you said, still are you still on the upper east well, i'm still on the upper east side well, that's you got to get get out of new york city with that lunatic de blasio and you oh. gotta and the upper i mean look i i first lived on 90th and first that's the first place i lived oh did my, you my 
My grandma, though, used to, who I spent a ton of time with, uh, lived on 58th between First and York over there. So I, I'm well aware of the, the Upper East, but I lived on the Upper West for most of my adult life and I loved it up there. But it's sad to see what it's become because the, the destruction of New York City is directly correlated with the, with the failure of liberalism. All of these good, tolerant, decent liberals who are now watching their schools be destroyed in the name of social justice, who are watching their all of their 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 synagogues and their churches be destroyed, their communities be destroyed, all in the name of tolerance. All in the name of tolerance. On top of the fact that I, it's probably just not that safe to live in New York City. Get, get no, out the, to Westchester; you'll be much happier. We have a house in New Jersey. We would, we quarantined in New Jersey. We have a house by the beach there, so that was great. We were there for like eight months, and we only came back to New York City because the, we were lucky enough for the kids to have in-school learning. So that's why we're here now. But it's not just De Blasio Cuomo; they're awful. They're absolutely yeah. they're toxic. They're awful. But you look who's talking. I mean, I, you've got Gavin News. I mean, look, I, I can't believe you're still there. You were in Texas. Texas. You were in freedom-loving Texas, you said, in your words. Are you, do you have the itch to leave? Don't you have the itch to leave LA? Yes, I do. I absolutely do. Financially, it obviously makes no sense to be here anymore. And, and the thing about taxes is, you know, although I'm, you know, most of my beliefs are, are libertarian in that regard, like there, there is a willingness to pay a certain amount to live in SoCal, which is absolutely gorgeous. I mean, you know, and, and the weather is great and I'm close to the beach and all of those things. But when everything is closed all the time and, you know, literally my dog is starting to have a nervous breakdown because when I walk, <laughs> when I walk dog. the dog, I'm walking down this way. Someone's walking a dog this way. They won't even let the dog sniff butts anymore because they don't want to get close to another human. It's like the dogs are all going to go insane. I'm actually only partially kidding. I actually think we're going to see dogs with mental disorders. Thanks. Thanks to these COVID lunatics. Um, but, to, you know, the the it's more that what I don't like about LA at this point is the culture of fear that so many people have just accept whatever rule. Now wear six masks, wear six masks, wrap yourself in saran wrap, pour hot sauce all over your head and, and get out there and see what happens. That's the part that bothers me. That being said, the weather is keeping me here for now. And we do have a, you know, I have a couple of businesses now and a few other interests, but you know, I like Texas a lot. I did a meet and greet with the Rubin Report community. About 40 people showed up to a bar and we we ate and drank and, and hugged and it was extremely nice. I tend to think that Florida will be really where we end up, although the humidity will not be great for the height of my hair, but maybe you can give me some pointers on that. Yeah, I'll give you pointers and we got to get into the hair thing later too because that's a crazy story I read in your book. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, I just came back from Miami. Me and Brad actually went to Miami for about two weeks and- um, it was so wonderful. If I tell you, Dave, people there, the people working there, the Cubans, the Mexicans, whoever was there behind the bars, I mean, all these immigrants, they loved working. They loved their city. They loved being in Miami. They didn't care. They wore their masks. They were so happy. And we were thrilled. It was so open. We were shocked. We went out all the time. We went mainly to outdoor places, but a couple of times we ate indoors, which was wonderful. And you know, what's funny is that I find that, you know, we went to one rooftop place called Water on top of the one hotel. We liked the food there. They only let a few people in the elevator at a time. So me and Brad went, we had the kids in a stroller and we kind of got lost. So this really nice guy who lived in the building and lived in the hotel, you know, got us to the right place, but it was a long journey to get to the roof. So we had a conversation. I was telling him how much I love it in Miami. It's so free. We're thinking, you know, maybe moving here. And he actually made a comment, assuming that we're probably, you know, real leftists. And he said, well, the problem is if people move here, it doesn't become free anymore. 
Do you find that people in Texas, oh yeah, in Florida, they don't want they don't want us. They assume when you know, especially they see two guys with kids, they think yeah. that we're angry leftists. Yeah, that's a real issue. And by the way, I'm very sympathetic to that argument. You know, the idea the idea that, you know, you're a, you're a Texan, you've voted the right way, you've kept your taxes low, you've voted in small government people who get rid of regulation, allow businesses to thrive, don't do lockdowns, all those things. So you did it all right. And then when when basically the poop hits the fan, all of these Californians who've done it all wrong say, okay, we're leaving. And then for some reason, and maybe it's because their brains have been fried with sun in California, these people can't realize that it's the very policies and people that they voted in, you know, usually big lefty politicians, uh, who have ruined their lives, caused them to move, and then they import it into Texas. So I think Texas has to be careful. I think Florida has a, has a better backbone regarding this. But, you know, Beto O'Rourke was pretty close to beating Ted Cruz. That, that's a pretty scary premise. Yeah, it, w- it was pretty scary when it was happening, but he dropped off the face of the earth now. Beto or? Beto. Yeah, no, Beto. Uh, you know, yeah, off. yeah, Beto, Beto, whatever. I mean, he's really Irish, but, you know, he made up the name, but. Uh, right. Yeah, I mean, he tweets a little bit. He tweets. We'll see. Yeah, I'm not on Twitter, so I don't know, thank God, because if I was on Twitter, I say so much stupid shit. If you haven't noticed already that I'd be in so much trouble. So I need to stay off Twitter and I can't even go on Instagram anymore. You get it, right? I can't even go on Instagram because I scroll through all my friends and I see all their political stuff and I just close it. I can't deal. You know, I have three mantras. Put your best foot forward. The grass is not always greener and one size does not fit all. I don't, I, I try to abide by them. I'm not always successful, but I try to get through life that way. I don't like to combat people. I don't like to fight people. Me and Brad, we go mingle with other kids, parents in school, and people always assume that me and Brad are, you know, complete crazy leftists. We're not yeah. crazy anything. We just yeah. happen to be very reasonable people that want what's best for our family and for our country. That's, that's all we want. So I try to be quiet. I try to put my best foot forward. But when I, when I talk about one size doesn't fit all, this is a question I want to ask. Why is it people, particularly not people, the leftists get so angry when black people or gay people vote Republican? Why are they so angry that they, they don't? You. They need you stuck as a minority, as a victim, as a group. Nobody's coming for the gays. Actually, if anyone's coming for the gays, it's the lefties, right? Because they're now saying, you know, if you're a white gay man, you're you're privileged, and you know there were we've seen many stories out of colleges where the the heads of the LGBT groups that happen to be white gay guys have to step down so that you can have you know a black trans blind woman with a limp. I mean, none of it <laughs> right. none of it makes any makes any sense. But the revolution eats their own. And, and the worst, the only thing that the left has to offer at this point is that we can take a whole bunch of groups and sort of through that, if you, if you watched either the Transformers or Voltron, we can put these things together and create a, a, bigger, a bigger thing, right? Like the Constructicons created Devastator. He was a big Transformer. What, they, what they're forgetting, of course, is that nobody wants to be judged like this. Nobody wants to be judged that your sexuality is the t- totality of the way you think or that the color of your skin is the way you think. That Martin Luther King guy, remember him? He was against that sort of thing. I like, what, I like what he said, as opposed to what the current critical race theory people are saying. I, I like one thing you said before is that they are sooner or later gonna eat their own. 
I oh, mean, yeah. with They'll, all look, of these- look, um, Just this week, just this week. Great examples. Just this week, there was an, an article, I think it was in Washington Post, an op-ed piece, Washington Post or Washington Examiner, one of them, about uh, how Bernie Sanders has white privilege. So now here you take, you know, the, the, the <laughs> socialist, of course, he's a millionaire with three houses and blah, blah, blah. But that he who's done everything yeah. for the revolution, right? He who started this stupid thing. And I've said all along that it was going to eat him. Well, now they're coming for him. And congratulations, Bernie, by the own rules that you play by, you're right. You have three houses. You're a millionaire. You've actually never accomplished anything. You've never helped a major piece of legislation be passed in 30 years. And you're a white guy who's sitting close to the seat of power. So uh, have at it, social justice warriors. It's true. Yeah, absolutely. And you speak about it in your book about Brett Weinstein from Evergreen College. I mean, he was a complete lefty liberal and he was chased out of his own town. Yeah. And even Bill Maher. I mean, Bill Maher being called a racist from Ben Affleck. But these guys still don't get it. They still don't get it. They still want to pretend that they're the good liberals, that somehow they're just not as extreme as the other guys. And while I do think that Brett and Bill Maher, they're not crazy leftists like these guys, they think that they can still sort of be on the left and play with the liberals and go to nice parties and be thought of as nice academic or Hollywood type people and that that will save them. While it's just, you know, it's just us scary people more to the right that are the real bad guys. And it's just, I think it's a terrible miscalculation. And, uh, you know, when they cancel Bill Maher, it's going to be the left that cancels Bill Maher. It's not going to be the right that cancels Bill Maher. Actually, I see a lot of support for Bill Maher on the right. Usually people say, hey, you know, he's wrong on a lot of stuff, but I like him on free speech. Okay, let him babble on. And, uh, you know, I would say as for like, you know, Brett and some of those guys, it's like, I just think it's a terrible miscalculation. There was a guy in the office who you, who, as Gad would say, had this aesthetic, you had this aesthetic injury when you saw him. But he was he was doing all the things that you good liberals would never do. So in effect, it's like, here's the guy who was, you know, guarding the the gate and you decided to help take him out. And now the whole castle's been overrun and uh, you're going, ah, at least I'm not that guy. Right. Right. I want to ask you about something else. You know, but there's so much talk about racism, about homophobia, transphobia, Islamophobia, xenophobia. I'm more concerned about arachnophobia, to be honest with you. (laughs) The fear of spiders. Spiders are getting a bad name, you know? (laughs) Um, Do you find that anti-Semitism, there there seems to be more tolerance for anti-Semitism? Well, I would say it's, uh, well, first off, broadly speaking, I don't think most people are are anti-Semites or anything like that, especially in an American context. I think most people want to live and let live. I think actually, you know, although the right is often framed as somehow these are these are the anti-Semites or something like that. It's like the right. I mean, where is any support for Israel? Where is, you know, the left now has has decided that Jews, by an extension of caring about family and education, in essence, and having some sense of tradition, uh, the Jews are now white, even though it doesn't matter if we're only two generations off uh, the Holocaust or that half Jews are not even white. I mean, you know, we go to Israel any day now, half the people there are very dark skinned and or black, right? They might come from Africa or Ethiopia or from Morocco or Iraq or Iran or whatever else. I would say that the real anti-Semitism that I, that I fear uh, is the lefty anti-Semitism. It's the stuff that's being imported by Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and, you know, the obsessive focus on this little country that's the size of New Jersey and the hardest you know, part of the world to live in. And they obsessively focus on that 
You think it has something to do with because a couple of Jews can defend themselves there? I mean, it, it's fairly obvious. From an American perspective, though, I'm more concerned that the, the Jew stuff is being institutionalized as, hey, the way they want to punish white people is the exact way they want to punish Jews. If you succeed, they must punish you. Jews are thought of as success. But I would rather be successful and hated than uh, unsuccessful and, and dead. So there you go. I agree with you. And you brought the point exactly. It was um, the whole people like Rashida Tlaib and Ilan Omar. And I find most of the people now in the Democratic Party are following that whole suit of supporting, you know, the BDS movement. And, you know, they're all against Israel. And, you know, as, as, as Dennis Prager says, you know, you can't be against Israel without being anti-Semitic. Look, it's a you country, agree with that it's a country that's lit- well, it's literally the size of New Jersey. Uh, Jews have a little something right. to do with Israel, right? I mean, th- there is this Bible thing. I mean, there's some historical context. You know, I love it when uh, Rashida Tlaib, I mean, this woman, she's a true anti-Semite. Like, I don't throw those words around often, but she's a true anti-Semite. But she'll send out Hanukkah wishes. Oh, I wish you Jews, you know, happy Hanukkah. Does she know that Hanukkah is the story of the Jews? You know what they were doing in those Judean hills? Judean, you know, it ha- might have something to word Jew. Uh, it was, that's in the West Bank, a place where she wants no Jews to live now. It's the story of Jews defending their land in the West Bank. But, you know, these these people, it's it's just, uh, leftism in its modern sense is, is a brain virus and it, it destroys the faculties. And you throw in a little just old-fashioned anti-Semitism in there and you got a toxic stew. I know that you have no regrets about coming out as a conservative but it was so much more difficult for you to come out. Well, I don't know if I want to use the word conservative as a libertarian, whatever it is, but it was harder to come out like that than it was to come out as being gay for you. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had all sorts of internal struggles about being gay as yeah. most people do. And I didn't come out in many yeah. ways till my late twenties. And I, I don't really have regrets in life because, you know, it's sort of, I'm, I'm good where I'm at now, but I, but I wish I had been easier on myself. I wish I had you know, not done some of the things that I did. And it, co- it caused all sorts of things, you know, that, that you know, drug use and all, all the stuff that, that most people go through. So, but again, I don't really regret those things because I was able to get out. And all of that is just, you know, some of the stuff that led me to being here. But I would say, and by the way, I don't mind being called a conservative. I would say I'm something like a future conservative because the conservatives have shown themselves to be a wide tent. They've said, okay, we can have the more libertarian side. That's where a guy like me fits in. We can have the more traditional religious conservative side. That's just fine. Right. We can have some disagreements. Look, Rudy Giuliani, no one in their right mind doesn't think Rudy Giuliani's a conservative. He's a Trump-supporting conservative. Rudy Giuliani right. was for gay marriage years ago. He lived with two gay guys after he got divorced, and he's pro-choice, and yet he's obviously I didn't know a that. I didn't know that. That's cool. He's even oh, yeah. cooler now than he was before. He lived, he, after he got divorced, he lived with two gay guys on the, uh, that were friends, you know, lifelong friends of his on the Upper East Side. So, you know, he, so the, but the point is the conservatives have shown themselves to be tolerant. They've actually shown themselves in many ways to be far more liberal in the true sense than the left. So I don't mind being, you know, I used to, the word conservative, I thought was really terrible. It just sounded too old and stodgy. But, you know, in a time of complete chaos, like we're living in right now, the idea of being conservative and that actually is starting to sound kind of cool to me. Right. And ironically, the very people who supported you in being gay were the very people that vilified you for speaking out on just being a classic liberal and wanting equality for all. Well, From there, what I understand in your book, you say they destroyed you. 
There, they destroyed you to moment. the point that there, your hair was falling out. You had alopecia areata. I'm sorry to keep interrupting you, but I just want to point out in this book, it was so, I, I mean, I had the chills when I was reading it in the book that you developed alopecia areata, not really knowing what it was, clumps of hair, and then you find, you know, falling out of your head, but it can travel to your whole body. And you finally went to a doctor and were diagnosed. And you say in the book that this was it. You thought you were going to lose everything, everything you worked for in your life. Yeah, is gone. I, I did not expect to get the amount of hate that I was getting. And, you know, some people, you know, just because you're cool as a cucumber on the outside doesn't mean that the internal stresses aren't there. And I definitely was not dealing with them properly. And I was shocked that I was getting as much hate and not in, not only just online hate, but from friends and former colleagues and even family members. And uh, yeah, I developed alopecia areata. It's an autoimmune disease that they only can chalk up to stress. And I probably lost a good 40 to almost 50% of my hair. And I was using spray on things and fibers. And, and then I was on this really awful experimental medication that I get into in the book that caused literally my entire body to break out. And I couldn't be around heat and I was itchy and I was bloated and I had huge bags under my eyes. I mean, you can see it in my videos from a couple, a couple of years ago, but I, I got the stress under control. I changed my diet a little bit. I tried to use the, the infrared sauna. I got an infrared sauna. It's really good for inflammation. And, and more, than, more than anything else, just learned how to deal with my reality. And I'm happy to say this is, it's all mine. Yeah. It's all real. I was going to say mine. that's all yours. So you, your hair came back. It came back. I all also your do hair something. Came back. I do something called uh, PRP, platelet-rich plasma, which is where they actually yeah. take your blood out, they spin it in a centrifuge for a half hour, and then they inject the plasma back into you. Uh, they can do this for all sorts of things if you have aches and pains and, you know. Yeah, so I know. Uh, I did it on my elbow is, a couple of times. Yeah, yeah. So I know that you have to go. Just two little more questions I want to ask yep. you because I love your opinion on it. You know, my kids go to school. They go to a, um, a private school, but so far we haven't had the problem of them preaching about white privilege and all white kids are inherently racist. And, you know, you have people like Robin D'Angelo, you know, going and spewing all of this to schools. And I'm not just talking about colleges, but even elementary schools. What good is it doing for anybody, for the black kids, for the white kids? The only good it's doing is making Robin D'Angelo more yeah. successful that and more popular. That truly is it. It's selling books. It's giving these people institutional power and making a bunch of guilty people feel like crap. That, that in essence, is what it's doing. Has the BLM movement, which has raised billions of dollars and is supported by every corporate cause, and if you turn on PlayStation, it wants you to have a Black Lives Matter background. You turn on Apple TV, the Black movies of the month. You open Uber Eats, here are the Black restaurants. These are now becoming racist things. You know what? You're not going to believe this. When I order a salad, I don't care if it's from a black restaurant or a white restaurant. I don't. Can you make a salad? If you can make a salad, do you know how to make a chicken sandwich? I'll order from you. Believe it or not. I know that that's Of course crazy. not. Yeah. Of so, course so not. They, but racist has created... become such a regular word. Yeah, because it's meaningless. It's meaningless at this point. I, I, they have not sent anyone as far as I know. BLM has not sent anyone to college. I don't know that they've helped any black person build a business. I don't know that they've done any educational outreach or fed anyone. They're making a lot of people really rich at this point. If you point to me a place where there are laws that are institutionally discriminating against people, of course I will stand with you, but those laws just don't exist. 
And they don't let you talk about it either. Nobody lets you talk about it. If you speak, you know, it's funny because you say in your book, people need to speak out more. And I agree with you. People need to speak out more. I speak out when I can. I, I try to be gracious and let a couple of comments just go by me until I say very politely, you know, I'm sorry, you're talking to the wrong person. I'm in support of these policies, but I don't want to argue with people. You know, I just don't want to argue with people. Things just get ugly. When it comes to politics, things get so ugly. And I find that the values today are so antithetical to what we used to fight for here in America. It's the opposite of growing. When I remember growing up, everything I used to see on TV was, you know, fight for equal rights, fight for your neighbors, fight for everyone, fight for gays, fight for gay marriage. And this is what we're in agreement with. We're in agreement. So I'm still not finding out where the problem is. And I don't get what good is going to come from all this divisiveness. No, there is no good that'll come from it. It's a lot easier to destroy things than it is to build them. And, and they're in, we're in a destruction phase right now. And the question is, how much will they destroy while, while the rest of us try to rebuild? And I don't think there's an answer to that question. I think they can destroy a lot. I think a lot of people thought, oh, 2020 is over. Things are going to get better now. Well, we're a month in. And I, you know, if you think things are better, then I, I got a bridge to sell you. All right. So have you ever been part of the gay scene in Hollywood when you moved there nah, or New York the, City I've, for that matter? I've been to the Abbey a couple of times. You know, uh, we used yeah, to live in too. West Hollywood. You know, they've got gay crosswalks. And I like seeing the walk of shame in the morning after the right. <laughs> uh, after the Halloween parade, because or, what you know, you'd see like, right. you know, a guy dressed as Batman in a ripped costume walking down the street at 10 a.m. It's like something, ha you know, where's Robin? You know what I'm saying? Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I was, and what yeah, about when you I, lived in New York City? Nah, not really. You know, I had a show on the OutQ channel on uh, Sirius XM, so I guess I was involved in it a little bit, but I never really liked it because there was this constant worship of the real housewives and all of these people that didn't care about the gays, but they... But, you know, the gays were just happy that somebody, well, oh, my God, some drunk housewife is showing up to an event. How exciting. So I never really cared about that sort of thing. I did win uh, most improved player of the gay men's basketball league in around uh, 2012 or so. You know, not bad impressive. for a guy in his late 30s, you know. No, that's very impressive. Uh, you got to help me with my son one day because he likes to play everything. And I play, you know, baseball with him. I throw football. I even play basketball. It's funny. We were in Miami and there was a, a sports store that sold jerseys and he wanted a jersey. I look at Brad. We don't know the first thing about jerseys or, or, or ball, you know, football or whatever. I, I like Tom Brady. That's all I know. But he wanted a basketball jersey. So I text my nephew and I say, I want to buy a jersey, but I don't want to buy anyone that kneels for the flag. That's all yeah. I knew is I didn't want to buy a jersey of anyone that kneels for the flag. Oh, so you so had to he buy him like a throwback jersey from 1965. No, I got him Lucas Donkick, who played for, I think he plays for Dallas, Texas. Lucas Donkick, a basketball player. I don't even know That's who what he told is. me about. That's what I did. All right. Dave, I got to tell you, I appreciate your time so much. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Well, I look forward to seeing you next time you guys make it out to this crazy town. Listen, you invite me and I'll be there. Let me know. Let me know. I will. Sounds good. I will. Thank All you, right, Dave. Take care. You've been listening to Rich in Life with Rich Arani. If you like what you heard, click subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. Or visit us at richinlife.com. That's R-I-T-C-H in life.com.